Disruptive Voices, a podcast series exploring the triumphs, frustrations, and learnings of women working in fintech. I'm Kimberly Long, age editor at The Banker, and in this episode on financial inclusion, a force for change, we will be looking at financial inclusion and the women who are making it happen. Financial exclusion is an issue that disproportionately affects women, and more so in the developing markets. However, for many, fintech is providing a solution as it removes barriers to access which were in place. In this episode, female founders explain the issues they are tackling that fall outside the mainstream banking remit and how they are helping more people into banking networks. In this opening chapter, I'm speaking to Banu Hafisova, Blockchain Product Manager at Aleph Bank, but previously the director of the Aleph Academy. Aleph Academy is based in Tajikistan, but Banu has recently moved to Germany. Thanks for joining us, Banu. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting. So to begin with, can you outline what it is that Aleph Academy does? I think it's better to start from what Aleph is and why actually and how Aleph Academy was created. Aleph generally was created in 2014, a fintech organization in Tajikistan, and by now has grown to one of the biggest companies uh, in Central Asia with more than 1,000 employees and one and a half million clients. So we have representation in Uzbekistan and UAE uh, and hoping to expand to different countries. In 2017, because Aleph is first tech company, uh, there was a need to hire engineers because every technology we have is developed in-house. And we actually have struggled because uh, people who would come after students who would come after graduation, they didn't really have the knowledge or not enough knowledge to, to actually start working. And we, we have seen the gap there. So that's why Alif decided to open their own training center uh, called Alif Academy in 2017. It was only for Alif, you know, having the programming courses. But then very soon we realized that we, we, we don't hire everyone who graduates, but we have brilliant students and they go to other companies and, and, and we, we see the, uh, we saw the, the impact we have um, not only in Alif, but also overall in the market. So we decided in 2020 actually register Alif Academy as a public organization, which is one of the biggest IT schools in Tajikistan right now. We have more than 2000 graduates and more than uh, 16 different courses in IT. Our specialty was backend development when we just started, but now we have courses on back development, front design, product management, IT project management, data science, and many more. And we do other social uh, events and activities around IT too. So basically to sum it up is we are a public organization providing free, mainly free IT courses. Mm. I mean, it sounds really comprehensive as well, what is being offered, which is, sounds like it's really well needed as well in Tajikistan. But also because of the geography, um, what is interesting is that you are looking at it from an Islamic finance aspect as well. How does this offer them maybe from what conventional banking providers or educational programs might be offering their students? Yeah. So when we talk about ethical finance or Sharia compliant finance is really about making sure that the main working principles we have, everything we do is Sharia compliant. That means all of the processes we have are, are very transparent. We do not make profit uh, out of the students who come to academy. Everything, uh, generally the, the investment which is in the academy comes from organizations or people who donate or invest in, in the company. We also if there, if there is a fee for our courses, we, we invest that money into developing the programs and making them better. Um, so it's non-commercial and we are not involved in any uh, activities which might not be Sharia compliant, anything gambling or uh, anything which is uncertain. So it's basically, we can call it ethical, uh, it, mm. it doesn't really mean if, if we, we say we're Sharia compliant, it's, it's only for exclusively for Muslims. It's just really making sure we have the best interests of our customer in mind, our partners in mind, 
uh, and and generally uh, can can call it ethical. Mm. And you've obviously, with the program, got really kind of that social responsibility at the very heart of what you do. And as part of that as well, the services you provide are really targeted towards children and also Afghan refugees. And with this, what kind of services do you see these people are most in need of or what kind of educational services are they most looking for? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, a bit of a background of why we have decided to start working with Afghan refugees um, and, and have programs dedicated to kids. We, we have our regular courses, but we also have some of the project, which we call our social project projects. Uh, they're experimental in many ways because we not always know that, okay, this is what we need. For example, with kids, we, uh, we were not sure if this is a good idea or it's definitely a good idea to invest in that, but was it the right time or is it uh, the right time for us to allocate our resources to that? But it was an experiment in a sense that we wanted to invest in the future. We wanted to see if we can spark that curiosity towards technologies from the very young age. And that's why we wanted to introduce these courses. And when it comes to Afghan refugees, there are big numbers of Afghan refugees in Tajikistan. We border with Afghanistan and when um, especially the last year or two with the current situation in Afghanistan, the number of refugees has increased and they have struggles when they move to the other country. The language barrier, the lack of opportunities, there are taxes if you hire uh, refugees and not a lot of organizations are willing to pay extra taxes when they hire refugees. So that's why they have a hard time to find a job. So that means they don't have they have financial needs. So what we wanted to do is actually provide them with the skills they could use to uh, you know outsource their skills online. So they could they 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 could work online, and and that's how we decided to first start with courses dedicated to um, you know basic computer literacy because a lot of them didn't really know how to use email or um, you know. Uh, properly use internet or didn't know about the opportunities they might have online when it comes to their careers. So that's where we started to to give them that basic knowledge to help them to find job or at least a means of, you know, uh, for, for a living and uh, provide some opportunities for them. It's so interesting when you talk around that because it's addressing those issues that are so specific to not only your country, but also like the issues that are being faced within the country, like providing that support for for refugees and acknowledging the extra assistance they need. I think it's such a an interesting aspect of kind of the the financial inclusion or just the the kind of inclusion story overall of how to address those very specific problems that arise at a time and a place. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And to move on now to my final question today. So as you mentioned, your new title is around blockchain and, you know, it's very innovative and exciting area. And I haven't already done an episode on crypto. Um, I've spoken to several women in the space already. So it's interesting to hear we've got another one who could have potentially have spoken to me. But to look more broadly now, is tech fintech maybe becoming an attractive choice of work for women in central asia it's not maybe a region that we hear too much about in terms of the fintech or the crypto revolution so is it something that's becoming more interesting and is it accessible to women to enter as well it's definitely becoming attractive in in central asia in, in Tajikistan too, I, I think if we compare what is happening in the sector now to what was happening years ago, like two, three years ago even, like very recently, there is uh, a big improvement because there have been more initiatives uh, to actually fill the gap, the gender gap in, in fintech and, and STEM in general. I think that there have been initiatives to raise awareness about jobs in tech, opportunities in fintech as well. There are specific courses for women to go and study. And Alif Academy actually has a specific course for training women engineers. And I think it has it, it's becoming attractive. There, there's a lot to, to do. I think it's there's so many stereotypes still. Women still think that this is um, not something women should be doing because it's very difficult. Then if you tell fintech, everyone thinks it's only related to math and engineering. It, there's not enough 
information about about opportunities in tech for women and i think there has we have done a lot to raise awareness we have done a lot to motivate girls to come to the sector but there's so much more which needs to be done starting from um, the companies who should be encouraging and providing extra support to families and schools and universities who should be raising awareness, empowering and, and supporting girls to choose what they want to do. Mm. Thank you so much, Brian. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you. Welcome to the second chapter on financial inclusion. I'm joined by Pierre Roman Tayag. Director of the Office of the United Nations, which supports Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands in her capacity as the UN Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance. Queen Maxima has been a Secretary General's Special Advocate since 2009 and is a leading voice in advancing universal access to and responsible usage of safe and effective financial services. She was previously an economist working on international finance and emerging markets. Pia, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kimberly, for having me on your podcast. To begin with, I think it'd be really helpful if you could talk to us a bit about Queen Maxima's work and what she does on financial inclusion. The best way I could answer that question would be to start with a why, of why she is doing this work. Why has she been committed to this advocacy since, as you said, 2009? Around the world, there are too many people who lack access to the formal financial system. And what does this really mean? This means that people do not have a means to save for a rainy day. If they have an economic opportunity, they cannot take out a loan. They have no insurance to guard against any shocks, medical illnesses or climate shocks and they can't invest in their futures. And so this is really the cause that she's trying to address by elevating financial inclusion in the global policy agenda, highlighting why it is important and why it also contributes to other policy objectives. So she's really done this work through um, her participation in global platforms like the G20. She is the honorary patron of the G20 Global Partnership for Financial Inclusion. And she has also put financial inclusion in discussions where it was not there before. For example, the standard setting bodies now understanding that financial inclusion is also critical in their respective mandates. Another way she does this work is really through country visits, where she goes to priority countries, really listen to the issues, hear, you know, what is being done there, what are the barriers, and share the knowledge that she has had in interacting with other stakeholders on good practices to advance financial inclusion. She also supports the industry in gathering more evidence and data for us to track progress, but also to see where the good practices lie and how we could further um, expand financial inclusion globally. So she works with the reference groups and partners that, you know, like the World Bank, for example, the IFC, the IMF, the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, the Consultative Group to Assist the Poor, the Better Than Cash Alliance, all these partners she works with to advance financial inclusion and to make sure that her advocacy is followed through by on the ground and in the countries that she works in. So much of the financial inclusion piece that we've talked about relates to different organizations and geographies. And the theme of this podcast series is around fintechs. How have you seen fintechs improve financial inclusion levels in a way that the traditional banks cannot, especially looking at emerging markets where bank penetration may not be at the level of other locations? Yes, indeed. Fintechs are in a special position to really increase scale in financial inclusion, and it already has. I think I narrated all the work that Her Majesty has done, of course, with various stakeholders globally. And I would say, you know, the industry, we have made progress. Uh, More than one quarter of the world's adult population now has gained access to financial services since 2011. So that's rising from just 51% adults who were included to 76% who are now included in the formal financial system. And I would say that digital financial services and fintech has driven a lot of the recent increases in in these figures. Access to digital accounts and payments has been really the first step and it has really led to more account ownership. So just for example, 39% of adults in developing economies opened their first account because they knew they could receive 
their wages or government payments digitally. And in fact, I would say even COVID has accelerated this because 9% of adults in developing economies made a digital merchant payment for the first time in their lives. And so it has really enabled account ownership, but beyond that, really doing more in terms of payments and accessing other financial services. And I think, as you said, fintechs are well-placed because they address some of the barriers that traditional providers were facing in reaching these unserved markets. For example, even just the physical barriers, right? It's very costly to reach segments that are maybe far from city centers, but also not just physical barriers, but also cost. It's very expensive to gather information about your clients, to be able to provide them the services they need. And even just onboarding clients, getting IDs and, you know, documentation requirements, those were quite um, unsurmountable for a lot of um, um, people who are underserved. But fintechs and digital and innovation has really addressed some of the, those barriers. Um, you can now reach them through their mobile phones. And, uh, you know, we know that it's almost like putting a, a bank or a financial service provider in their pockets because they can, they can be onboarded also digitally. Um, there's more information because of the transactions that are stored digitally, where providers now have a visibility on what these customers may need and may have the capacity to pay. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. From features I've done previously looking at financial inclusion in Asia, one thing that comes up is the barriers women face to accessing the financial sector for the first time. From what you're seeing, how are women in particular being let down by traditional banking models, for example, which may have further exacerbated levels of financial exclusion? Yes, definitely women are one of those segments that continue to be underserved. Maybe I will start with some good news here, um, Kimberly. Based on the World Bank Findex, just the most recent one, 2021, the gender gap is now 4%. And what does that really mean? This is the first time that the gender gap has narrowed since we started tracking financial inclusion since 2011. This was uh, 7% in 2017. That is big progress, I think. But there should not be a gap. There is still 740 million women who do not have an account. And this is why women's digital financial inclusion is really central in Her Majesty's work as UNSGSA. And, you know, what are the reasons why this is um, exacerbated is, is one, you know, traditional financial services typically have requirements that are often barriers for women. For example, collateral such as land or, or property. Property, property rights are not equal in many countries. Collateral oftentimes sit in the hands of men or husbands. Women in 86 countries cannot legally do the same jobs as men. So they're not able to provide the information that financial service providers need to, be, to offer them financial services. Secondly, women have less access to digital public goods. And what do we mean here? Simple connectivity, for example, or even access to digital IDs. If we are looking at digital and technology as an enabler for financial inclusion, there is a significant digital gender divide. For example, there are 234 million fewer women accessing mobile internet than men. And this is true, similar case in mobile phone ownership. And in IDs, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, 74% of men have IDs versus only 65% of women. So without these digital public goods that are accessible to women, they're also unable to optimize the opportunities in fintech and digital financial services. And I think finally, there are also social norms that prevent women from accessing formal financial services. And fintechs and financial service providers need to really integrate that in the way they design their products. I think the message here, Kimberly, is that, you know, fintech and you know all the technology all the innovation that is not the end in itself we want them to generate products that are useful and valuable to all segments including women and that re really addresses also the risks that digital financial services provide for example you know do we have digital literacy for people who are probably entering this space for the first time? Are there enough consumer protection for digital financial services? And really going beyond just payments. I mentioned, you know, a lot of people opened accounts to make payments and merchant payments, but we should go beyond that. We should have savings and insurance and access to credit. 
And these are really what can enable women to participate and be economically active. And I think the reason why this is important to Her Majesty's um, advocacy is that there is such clear evidence that access to financial services for women strengthens their economic empowerment, their financial independence. But more than that, it actually has a multiplier effect for their families and their communities. We've seen this, for example, in Bangladesh, you know, women uh, garment workers who are receiving their salaries digitally were able to save and really pay for the emergencies that their family faced. So this is really something that fintechs and financial service providers should keep in mind. And I think there's from the, the, the research I've done for features and things in the past on this topic is you mentioned around the products that are being designed. And that's something that I found was so interesting because if you're designing something that is to bring in someone for the first time, it's not enough just to simply give them like a, a, an account, like a, a space to hold the money. It's actually providing those services and things that came up were almost uh, providing a way for women to save during their pregnancy for when, the, when their child is born. And, you know, how that is done and like the, the money is sometimes held by the midwives, for example, and things like that. And I thought that was so interesting that there's this, the way of thinking has to be different. It's actually how to solve specific problems or pain points rather than just creating kind of a, a generic almost bank account that you know we might be more familiar with in the west for example i think that's exactly right kimberly i mean you know when they say products are gender neutral that means you know it's not really designed for the women's needs mm. in mind um sadly and 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 you pointed to really good examples. I mean, Her Majesty was just in Tanzania in October, and there she really met women who were receiving a very innovative digital payments that helped them pay for healthcare while they were pregnant. And it really was a, a way for them to, you know, make reg have regular checkups, make the payments very um, conveniently, and it really increased the health of their babies. Um, and their health while they were pregnant. So these are, you know, really a good example of how technology is improving financial inclusion, but it's leading to other positive outcomes like financial health. And I think that is one way that we really need to challenge um, almost, you know, the industry to be really looking at what are the products and services that are being designed and are they leading to the positive outcomes that we want to see? Um, is it giving more oppor economic opportunities? Is it building resilience? Is it leading to financial health? And Her Majesty has been very committed to this topic. Um, she facilitated a working group and you know, to, of experts um, to really come out with a definition of what we mean because we need to define it to know how to achieve it. And it's really looking at, you know, very basic financial health is the ability to meet day-to-day -day needs, to be able to plan for the future and meet those future goals, to be resilient against shocks, and to feel confident about our financial situation. And having these elements really allows, you know, everyone, especially women, to really take control of their financial lives. And there is really a big business case for financial health because you know financially healthy customers are better customers but at the same time it's also a very important policy objective for policymakers it's relevant for consumer protection it's relevant for financial stability so i think we cannot look at innovation and fintech and all the you know the the new things that can be done without the end in mind and without the outcomes we want to achieve i think that point that you just made about the need to define it to be able to achieve it is really a great phrase to keep in mind about when you're trying to reach a goal. So with this in mind, we can move now on to the final question. You've talked around the work Her Majesty has done and the progress that has been made, but what do you see now as being the biggest obstacles that we need to remove to allow all women to access the financial services they need? I would like to really focus on the opportunities that we could really now optimize to make sure that indeed we address this gender gap and really increase women's financial inclusion and financial inclusion in general. So one I think is, you know, the barriers that I mentioned earlier, there is now a lot of tools for us to address them, both policymaker and providers alike, you know, making sure that there is 
di affordable digital connectivity, building digital literacy, for example, and consumer protection for women, investing in digital public infrastructure with in, in, keeping in mind that we want to include those that are excluded. I think those are important points to address those barriers, but I think the opportunities really outweigh the challenges. First, I mentioned a lot have been onboarded because of digital, except of course, because of COVID. What can we do now with all these new account holders that are receiving government payments? These are opportunities now to offer products that are more value adding, as I said, savings, insurance, credit for women, and to really expand their economic participation. I think technology is also presenting a lot of opportunities in terms of you know, the digital platforms and online marketplaces. This can really help women-owned SMEs grow and reach new markets. And the private sector here has a really big role to play, to, you know, to bring more women into key supply chains, for example, either as suppliers, employees, consumers, or entrepreneurs. So I'd really want to highlight you know, the opportunities that that brings and the learnings that we've had so far in terms of how to properly and appropriately um, design products for women. So I think moving forward, that would be really where I would, you know, would like to see more progress. And, you know, I think, again, focusing on the outcomes that we want for women, financial health, building resilience and increasing economic opportunities for them. Pia, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, Kimberly, for, for having me and also for having this topic in your podcast. Welcome back to Disruptive Voices. In this chapter, I'm speaking with Sarah Duanto, founder and managing director of Do It Happy. Based in Indonesia, Do It Happy is a financial inclusion enabler, which uses biometrics to allow financially excluded populations to receive payments and financial aid. Sarah, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Kim. Really appreciate the opportunity. So Do It Happy is such a, a simple idea to help financially excluded people. And I think it'd be really great to start off with if you could explain what it is that Do It Happy does, how it works, and also what was it that motivated you to establish the app in the first place? Yeah, so um, let me just start with the story first. So um, before I founded Do It Happy, I was managing director for a G2G organization. So I was managing $600 million grant from the U.S. government to reduce poverty in Indonesia. However, even though we had $600 million, we have the Indonesian government, U.S. government, and the bank with the largest network in Indonesia, we could not get the money across. We tried everything. We tried to have the bank go to the people, having the people go to the bank. Nothing worked. And so at the end of the day, what we had to do, the only solution was for my people, for my staff, to actually go around carrying sacks of cash and then give it by hand, one by one. And I thought, this is just insane. If an organization with the resources that we had couldn't do it, then nobody can. And that's because there was absolutely no system to do it. So I said, okay, no, this has to change. There has to be a system, but okay, somebody has to do it. So I guess it might as well be me. So I resigned from my position and I found it with Happy to create the solution. Now we are able to actually distribute money and cashlessly, digitally to pretty much any corner within Indonesia. And we are able to do so even during the pandemic when nobody could travel. So we actually grew 13 times uh, in 2020 because of uh, the pandemic. And we were the only solution that were able to do so. And so we've delivered since uh, millions and millions of dollars to financially excluded populations around Indonesia. And now uh, we're actually expanding beyond just Indonesia, but then also Japan. And it is very, very eye-opening for us as well, because it turns out that before we were thinking of just the unbanked, but it turns out that the financially excluded is um, a lot, even a lot more in even in developed countries with very high uh, bank populations as well as uh, high income. <laughs> the way we do it is by enabling it through biometrics. So people, don't even need to have a phone. They simply can use their face 
and then they go to they go to their nearby store, show their face, put in the pin, and shop or withdraw money. So very very simple. So when we last spoke, because we've spoken before, it was back in um, 2021. And when I was writing a feature, which was about Islamic banking compliant apps, and that's when I kind of came across you and what you were doing. And one thing that really struck me back then uh, was when you were telling me a story, which is about how people were using the the aid they were receiving, which um, was following the flooding in Indonesia. And people were using their money to buy food blenders as these were essential for their work as food vendors. And I thought that was so interesting because it kind of goes against maybe people's idea of what aid is needed for how it was used. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear from you really, what are the real terms benefits of greater financial inclusion, not only for the recipient, but also for the companies that they buy from? Because I know a lot of your recipients of financial aid, they will often use small vendors, mom and pop shops, for example. And so how is this kind of helping the whole ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, definitely the recipients get an obvious benefit, but actually it's beyond that because as you mentioned, a lot of the merchants that they buy from are these small mom and pop shops that are not that much better off than the recipients of the aids themselves. Um, but with this, um, with Duit Happy, what we do instead of bringing things from outside of the area is that we empower these stores and these merchants within those areas and even during disaster times to be able to get back on their feet when it's in time of disaster and also it just during normal times to increase their sales. So when we had it during COVID, what we asked uh, before and after, it was a very, very huge increase. So each vendor within those areas actually doubled and tripled their income. And this is really, really great because then there's this multiplier effect where the impact goes beyond just the direct recipients, but then also these stores and the economy in general within that area. Um, I just came like last month from an area that was affected by the earthquake uh, in West Java, and they didn't have any physical stores because their house was basically demolished, including their stores was also, it, it was like there, there were no walls. However, even though they didn't even have physical stores, they were able to sell and this lady, she was like ecstatic, beyond ecstatic, because she actually had an increase of like 14 times her normal sales, even in the time where she didn't even have walls. Um, but as long as she still had her garden and she just put the stuff that she was selling out there, and that's what she needed to rebuild her house and rebuild her store. And that's exactly why we're here, is to empower the people that are within those areas. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting story to hear because, you know, you hear so much about aid payments, how people are supported, but you don't really get the story kind of from the inside, from the people's perspective themselves. And I think what you can tell is that really powerful story about what financial inclusion actually means to a population and how it can help people to just build and grow their lives. I think that's such a powerful part of this story. Thank you. But it is very true. And especially if, if you talk with them and that's I would go to an area and, and last time we've been there was probably like for a few months. And then I would get little hugs from the recipients as well as from the stores. And it really reminds me, it's like, okay, we're doing something that actually does make a difference. And that makes a whole, that's all makes a whole lot of impact to my life mission. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely, you can see the, the tangible results of this, definitely. So to move on to another point, which is that really the focus of this whole series is talking to women about their experiences. And, you know, you've already said about how you came from a kind of a, a charity and NGO-based background. What was your experience as a woman founding Do It Happy and, you know, especially one moving into a completely different career segment? And... Within that, were you able to access support that you needed, such as getting assistance with tech? Were you able to access funding, for example? How was how was it for you to create this this app, which is obviously doing so much good? Well, I must tell you, this is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I started my career as a management consultant for Booz Allen, and then after that, I was head of treasures for ExxonMobil, handling like millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, and then after that, manning that $600 million. But by far, 
becoming a founder is the most physically, mentally, spiritually draining. It's good that I came in at a time where I knew that I was looking for a mission and I'm sure of what we're doing and that we are actually doing good and that never wavered. However, there were times where it's just like so hard. We started out bootstrapping and we looked for investors and it has been extremely hard. I've been very, very blessed that I did uh, get investors. I do. I am venture backed, but it, it, it has been extremely, extremely difficult. And it breaks my heart sometimes too when I hear that actually it's out of all of venture backed startups that only 2% are women led. And this is not because, I mean, like everything that you talk about in tech or startups, it's data driven, but the data says something completely different, which is that founders, women founders actually produce more revenue is uh, also achieve a 35% higher ROI. So if, if you're looking at the data, it shows that actually women-led uh, companies are performing at a higher rate, however, are getting so much less funding. So it, it, it doesn't quite match. And I think there was a research report that was also looked at this and then they under, what they saw was that between women founders and male founders, they have, when they pitch, they get asked different questions. And I actually experienced this myself. When a women founder pitches, like, because I have a FinTech app, right? Questions like, how about security? How is your data protected? What is, um, how are you ensuring that the, how about the licenses? How about the, it's always those kind of questions. And, Male founders get asked very different questions. And I said, I experienced this myself when I brought in my COO, who is a male, he got extremely different questions, which is, oh, how do you see this going forward? How far can you take this to? What other markets would you be able to address? So looking at this, it's women start pretty much at a kind of like a minus 10. And then we try very, very hard just to convince people to get to zero. So even if we have so much, we try so much and then we're lucky if we get to zero. Uh, but then with male founders, it's very different because they start at zero and it's going looking forward. So it's, they start at zero and then they end up at 10. So even though we move like 10 steps, we end up at zero and they end up at plus 10. And I, I saw this with my own two eyes. And I was like, wait a minute, he's getting different questions if he pitches at the exact same company. And I'm also there, but um, he gets completely different questions than I do. Yeah, it's... um. It's crazy. The this this kind of stories that I'm hearing from people and you know, I'm I'm looking at a whole VC episode later in this series, something to look forward to. Um and I'm sure I'm gonna hear so many of these stories, but I think it's really important to kind of get this out there so people are really aware of what women are going into. So I guess kind of to to give you a final question then really, what advice would you give then to women who are in that situation of maybe pitching and trying to get a funding for the first time? I mean, what what advice can you give on how they can really carry on pushing forwards? Well, actually, I mean, first of all, I mean, like a lot of these, even like the VCs or anything, they have no intention of being biased or discriminatory. It's just a lot of it is actually just subconscious that they, they don't even realize that they're asking different questions. But they also speak a very specific question in terms of investment. What they want to see is growth. They want to see revenue. Or like right now, especially after the startup meltdown, what they want to see is a um, just like multiples of revenue. They want to see like how you are financially doing, how big is the market. And a woman would need to learn to speak the same language as they do. And so if if they get on a tangent and ask questions that are, yes, it's it's important, but then kind of like geared, oh, but we're growing X and uh, this is how much, oh, this is our, this is our uh, our profit. We're we're already profitable, or this is our revenue. 
what is uh, the margin we have, what is our customer lifetime value compared to our CAC, um, or things that would speak to them. And then so if you bring the discussion to the things that, that actually do matter and get it out of the realms of doubt and rather into potential and then make them see the, the especially the financial potential um, and the how big the market is or the potential is, then you would have a better chance of doing this. And of course, strong track record would also be um, the number one once you get into a certain stage. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Hello and welcome to Chapter 4. I'm speaking with Tale Elimi, co-founder and CEO of Awafara, a Nigeria-based fintech providing financial services to the underbanked. Thanks for joining me, Tale. Thanks for having me, Kimberly. So for people who maybe don't know or aren't familiar with what you do, Awafara has the aim of bringing financial services to the underserved. So it's split into a couple of parts. So Farah has brought digital banking services to those in low-income communities, while Ruzo provides peer-to-peer -peer lending services, which pulls funds from individuals and corporate investors to support small businesses. Why did you feel the need to establish these two different yet related services? Okay, thank you uh, for the question. So when we started, really our aim was how can we get money to the people who we believe are the core of the economy, but they're underserved, which are really people in the micro and small business aspect of the economy, which makes up an informal economy in, in most emerging markets. And so mm -hmm. when we decided to serve them, something interesting happened because as a tech company, we built tech platforms. And then we found out that initially we could only serve about 5% of the market because our technology was a bit too complicated for the remaining 5% of the market, which is really interesting. So we built a technology platform that we, we believe to make it easy for them to quickly go on the platform, apply for funding to help them with their businesses or their ventures. But we then realized that <laughs> building the platform was not the only um, way to give them access, that there was still a barrier to use of technology. And so we had to be, we had to go back to the drawing board to say, okay, fine, we've been able to serve 5% of the market, which, you know, for a large uh, uh, country like Nigeria, which has over 200 million poor people, okay, that's not bad. But the truth is that we were leaving too much on the table with 95% of the people who uh, in a cash-based economy just, you know, did, did most of the traditional in cash and did not really have you know the access or the ability to use technology and so we were leaving them behind by having this you know techie platform <laughs> that they couldn't use and so going back to the drawing board we then created Farah and Farah for us was an, our answer to get access to people who really needed the most the real what we call the real underserved and underbanked in you know in the peri-urban uh, populations in the rural areas you know who really need financial access but they don't have smartphones you know so they can't log into a platform they can do all the transactions and so we thought okay we need to find ways to get to them and so we built Farah. and what Farah does is Farah allows people who we call our partners our field partners or our field team members to go into these communities and serve as you know their own like personal financial managers or their own tellers and provide them access to financial services so even even if they don't have a smartphone okay with um we're currently building a card system for them with their card and their personalized account number which is tied to their wallets they can still get access to credit they can get access to savings products and it's real to them. And then they can get a text message to tell them what their, maybe their transaction balances is to give them some sort of comfort, you know, about their money. So we had to build around the needs of the core population who were really underserved and yeah. who couldn't use technology. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting point around the the assumption, I think, in some cases where everyone has a smartphone now. But actually, the reality is, is that there are still millions of people globally who have kind of the you know, the old fashioned kind of quote unquote dumb phones, I suppose, that we used to use. But that is still a really viable way of people 
becoming financially included, it is still possible to do that even without that kind of brand new smartphone technology. Yeah, so the thing is, you have to look at your target audience. Definitely, we what we're gunning for is to get everybody to a point where they can all log into an app or a simple software solution or a platform to get access to financial services. But then when you look at your target audience and you find people who still use feature phones, and then there's also, um, you know, just the lack of education around technology, the trust in technology. So, you know, there might be even some cases where people might even have access to a smartphone, but they don't, they don't trust technology. There's still a phobia for, are you sure I can trust this platform, you know? I don't have, do I have the confidence that with this platform, you know, my money is safe or I can get access to credit. I'm not going to be scammed and all that stuff. So it's interesting that there's still a, a large population of people who still think that way, you know, so it's either they don't have access to technology or they have access to technology, but they're scared of technology. And so you, you sort of have to meet them where they are and then find ways to bring them up, you know, and so that's why one of the things we do to help to bring them up is we're investing a lot in education because we think that education is a part of inclusion okay because if people don't know you know what they can have access to you know they don't really they're not really included okay if they only know what they know you're not really including them so as much as we're meeting them where they are we're investing a lot in educating them to see what is possible so that we can bring them up to the state where they can possibly be a customer that can be independent and use our platforms on their own and so that's what we're doing no, that sounds really great. And it is uh, education piece is such an important part of this, as well as even having the the technology or the services. It's helping people to trust, because if you're asking somebody to put their money into something, it's, you know, there's there's a huge amount of trust required with that. And I think that's a really important aspect as well of having that education there as well. Yes, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. So to look now specifically at Ruzo, so you offer a service within this, which is target at women-run small businesses. Why did you think this having this focus that just looks at women was necessary? For us, in doing the research, we found out that in the midst of the underserved, women are actually more underserved if there's anything like that. So basically, um, maybe... Uh, 65% of men might have a bank account, but less than 50% of women might have a bank account in emerging markets. And so we realized that women were really the core of the underserved. And so we've also realized a lot of the algorithms, you know, that are written to give access to credit are actually already biased um, to things that women might not qualify for. And so maybe as a female founder, I just thought, you know what, I, I think that I want to take this head on. Even though our fintech is gender agnostic, you know, I just realized that we need to find a way to be make to be more inclusive to women. And then research has actually shown that women actually pay debts better because they usually take what they need, or even sometimes lower than what they need. You know, while men will probably take more than they need or ask for more than they need because you know maybe it's the confidence factor. I don't know. So there, there are just you know multiple variables to these things. And so we decided that we will be very inclusive in our algorithm, in our credit algorithm, to allow more women to have access to financial services. And that's why we created the Women Trader Program. For us, that was like our initial test to be able to see, okay, you know, if we, you know, create algorithms that pay special attention to women, you know, would women be better customers? And right now we've, we've collected enough data to prove it, that actually we have better um, repayment from women Okay, women always ask for right-sized right credits. They ask for what they need that they grow gradually, you know, and we have a better repayment. And for anybody who's into financial services, risk management is at the core of what you do. And then if you have risk management that has some gender uh, benefits, I think that it's a win-win. And that's how, why we, you know, went in that route. Mm. And it, it's great to hear when you have the data because you can't argue with the data, you know, when you've got the facts to back something up. <laughs> no, you can't argue with the data. You can't. You can't. And every year we're churning these numbers. You know, we're looking at the data. We're saying, does this still hold true? You know, so it's not a biased thing. You know, does this still hold true? Do women make better customers? And, you know, a few weeks ago, we churned the data again for last year, 2022, and it still holds true. You know, we found that that women make better um, customers in terms of repayments, you know, even though they still don't have as much access to financial services because women are naturally conservative. They don't usually leave their 
um, environment to go out of their way to look for access to financial services. And so that's the thing that what we're offering, especially with our FARA products, which is what we are really doubling down on if we really want to address financial inclusion, is a winner for them because we take it to where they are, to their communities. And, you know, that makes it easily accessible. It helps to build trust with our field partners, you know. Yeah, and then it helps them to grow from there. Yeah, and and also on just to stay on that point for a second, the thing some of the conversations I've had in the past and features I've written before, which are looking at kind of financial inclusion technology for women, something that has come up is the lack of gender disaggregated data and how it's harder to prove if you haven't got that data set there. And I think there are some places where it's either a requirement or it's just that it's done now that actually there is the the gender disaggregated data is collected. But I think, you know, that's one of the advantages of like the services that you have is you can actually prove this and you can then have this data set which can be used more widely in Nigeria or even Africa as a whole to prove that women are a more reliable customer or they're more trustworthy. Yes, I mean, uh, the first time I heard about gender disaggregated data, I think it was from an organization called Financial Alliance for Women. Um, you know, I think we, they did a fintech or uh, hackathon and we participated and, you know, it was very eye-opening to see the data, you know, and to see that, but it's even more exciting for us to actually prove that data, you know, where we have been able to collect our data over about three years and we can look at that data and be able to say, oh, really, to be honest, you know, because we're now, uh, we're now very deliberate about collecting data to say, okay, what's the gender? What's the age range? You know, what do they do? We are now able to actually prove it for ourselves that, oh my God, these people are actually better at pain and all that. And so the reason why we also did the Women Trader program was we also wanted to spotlight women and create a sort of safe space for them to say, you know what? We know you, we see you, we know that, you know, you, you need access to financial services. We know you won't go out of your way, so we want to come to you. And, um, you know, actually women in the informal economy uh, who are really, really, really much more underserved. Mm-hmm. And within that, we've talked so much around the the kind of the services that are being provided. But do you think there are any services that are still lacking that would be helpful to increase financial inclusion? And where do you think there are still gaps in the population that maybe aren't being reached? Yeah, so um, this is an interesting question because everything that you and I can have access to that the informal economy can't have access to is a gap, okay? So things that will help that will help our lives become easier that ease of financial service is actually an important thing. For example, getting access to mortgages, Okay, even though in developing economies, mortgages are still not very easy for even, you know, the white collar worker or the corporate worker. But the truth is, we we did a a, a training for a couple of people last week. And then we asked them to say, what is your number one need? What is the thing that makes you do the, you know, this business? And they said, we want to own our own houses. So you see, that is, that was their number one need. So we thought, okay, want to buy a car? They said, no. You know, okay, how about school fees? Well, that's important. We want to pay our children school fees. But the number one need we have is we want to be able to own our own lands, own our own houses. You know, that gives us a sense of, you know, ownership. And so for me, that is already sort of like a gap because that is very financially dependent because it's access to financial services that makes it easy for you to own, you know, maybe buy a house or own land. So those are things that are very important. Another thing that we find that's also very important that might not be directly financial services, but very tight financial services is health insurance. You know, a lot of people in the informal economy, um, when they fall ill, they mostly spend their capital. You know, they mostly send their capital and then they're back to square one. And that's why poverty is very prevalent in the informal economy. You know, because you don't have like systems to help you, you know, that you don't have an emergency fund, really. You're living from, you know, day to day, hand to mouth. So if, for example, they fell ill or they had an injury, you know, because of work and they, they had access to health insurance, they will not have to spend their capital. Okay. They will just, you know, maybe go to the doctor because they had their health insurance and that will help them preserve their capital. And so, so those are like things that we see as gaps. I mean, there are a few people also addressing things like retirement benefits or pensions, you know, which is good, which is also important. But a lot of times their mindset is really what they feel is pension, which is interesting, is actually is from a social perspective. They feel if I have a house, okay, so till I'm old, I have a place to live. 
you know, if I have kids or children take care of me, then that's my own insurance. And so that's the thinking. So, um, and that's why for me, the two things I think are very important right now, if, 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 ask, if we're thinking as about expansion in helping them to really live or have total financial wellness is access to owning or having their own homes and access to helping them to get access to health insurance, you know, finding ways to make that happen. So those are the two things that are, I think are a gap and I'm passionate about maybe sometime in the future as we go. Yeah. It's really, it's moving, it's moving on now as well. I think from that initial phase of just bringing people access to the formal financial sector through whether it's fintech or whatever, but the more complex and more sophisticated products now, it's taking it up to that next level, isn't it? And it's, I think that's something that maybe we need to start thinking about more rather than just thinking that it's a case of letting people have a bank account for the first time. It's actually, well, they have that bank account, they have a credit history now, now it's time to take it up to that next level. Yes, very, very important. Very, very important. Because the truth is you literally need to anticipate, you need to know your customers, right? I need to anticipate to say, what is what is their pain points? What is it they're really thinking about? And sometimes the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because of the thing they really want. Yeah. And sometimes we're trying to solve for the symptoms, but we're not solving for the real problem, the root cause. No, I think that's such an important message to leave on there. So Tale, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Kimberly. Welcome to this final chapter in this episode on financial inclusion. I'm joined by Vivi Friedgut, founder and CEO of Black Bullion. Black Bullion is a fintech platform providing financial advice and support to university students. Vivi, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So when we think about financial inclusion, we often think about people maybe gaining access to banking for the first time. But there's really an important educational element to this too. What motivated you to launch Black Bullion? Yeah, it's such a great question um, around financial inclusion. I love it. My motivation was really I spent 10 years, almost a decade, in wealth management, helping very rich people get richer, which was great. I've got no criticism. But you become very conscious of the fact that the rich are not only benefiting from having a lot of money, but from having a lot of advisors and a lot of guidance and a lot of people that help them to navigate the complexity of financial services and, and of our world, really. And, and everybody else doesn't. Um, and so really I came into it with just a very small mission, which was to help everybody to have the education level that they need to best create the life that they want. Everybody wants something different, but there are basic um, basic pieces of knowledge that a lot of people don't have. And that's really what drove us to start. And really, you know, you're focusing on that student element as well. Why were they the most important group you felt to focus on? Yeah, so when I started Black Bullion, student fees had just tripled to the nine to the over nine grand. And so it just seemed like a bit of an obvious place to start. There's a lot of people trying to tackle and talking about financial education in schools. And there's a lot of people doing great work there. But schools are quite difficult to crack as a business, um, which is why so many charities do it. Um, students are really at the beginning of their financial life. And so making a small difference for them can have huge repercussions later. So it just seemed at the time like a really good place. And years later, I'm glad we started there because it, it was it was the right call. Um, and students today are, of course, with the cost of living, they are the ones that can most benefit from, from what we're doing. So I'm pleased we made that decision. Brilliant. And for kind of leading on from that, what are the biggest issues you find in terms of lack of knowledge about personal finance? Like you say, you know, it's... It's young people, it's students, you know, you get that, you know, however much it was like through, I mean, this is, this is me talking from like my 2004 perspective, but like, you know, you get your three grand on your bank account, it's the most money you've ever had in your life. And it's a little bit overwhelming. And, you know, you, everyone has the horror story of someone who spends their entire student loan in the first week kind of thing. Um, so obviously there's that kind of aspect, but, you know, how do you help young people to really overcome the problems that they might face? Yeah, so there's two there's two um, real sides to I guess the challenge, and as you said, and and it's not even just spending all of it now. It's we've had students who've put all their money into crypto just before crypto fell off a cliff, uh, so that was not great. Um, but part of part of our um, kind of th like trying to help students is partly around budgeting and just making your money last from loan drop to loan drop. And you know, there's companies who know better than students when the loan is going to drop because that's the day you get all of the offers come and you know buy your new shoes and buy now pay later and all of that stuff. So the one is to kind of be aware of that and try to manage your money in the best possible way. The other is to get into good money habits when actually there's a great safety net. So 
as you know, the second you leave university, there's no safety net. You know, I mean, there's a government safety net, but but the, the right time to learn and if you are going to have any money mistakes or mishaps is when you can go to the university's student service department and say, you know, I can't pay my rent this month. Can you help? Which doesn't really happen when you graduate into the big bad world. So those are kind of the two areas from the learning perspective. Those are the two areas that we're really trying to just support students through. Make your money last from now until the next loan drop and get yourself in the right frame of mind and the right reference with money for beyond university and it's a it's a big challenge but but that's what we're setting out to do mm. yeah I mean looking at your materials and what you do now as well I thought it was interesting the news that you have the scholarship hub as well which I thought was a really interesting concept and yeah I thought it'd be great if you could explain that a bit as well what you do yeah there. I'm incredibly proud of this move um, we were in the middle of, of raising our seed round and anyone who's listening who's tried to raise money as a startup knows how hard that is and in the middle of it, we made an acquisition, which is just not done. Um, but it just seemed like a really good opportunity for us. And we were lucky that the Scholarship Hub is kind of the number one platform in the country for scholarships. But scholarships themselves are quite unknown in the UK. In the US, it's it's a kind of $180 billion market or like pot of money. In the UK, it's two. It's 20, but 18 of it is university money. So it's only two million pounds. And a lot of that is charity money. So... And especially as the cost of living crisis has kind of deepened and become a bigger issue, we just launched a report yesterday to show just how bad it is. We kind of figure that, you know, government has got a lot on its plate trying to help people. Universities are doing their best, but they don't have enough money to be able to cover this. And actually organizations, companies, you know, private and public companies are all saying that there's, you know, a skills shortage and, and all of these issues and actually them wanting to hire diverse talent, students wanting more money and universities wanting to bring the two sectors together actually means the scholarships are just a fantastic vehicle for for a win-win-win, which I know sounds really cheesy, but but everybody wins. And it's not a huge amount of money for a big company to sponsor effectively a bunch of students to complete their education. So we're creating kind of a new asset in the education system. But if America's anything to go by, there's a huge space there and we've got all of the pieces together. We've got the students, we've got the, the hub, we've got the technology. Um, and a lot of companies that we've been speaking with are really keen to get involved. They can wave their flag for diversity. They can get young talent in. They can build their leadership pipelines. Um, and they can do all of this in the middle of a crisis when they're not hiring graduates, but in a year's time, we know they're going to need it. And they'll have ready-made graduates who believe in their brand right off the bat. So ask me again in 12 months, but we are super excited about the potential of this. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting because, like you say, I think the concept of scholarships, you kind of know about it, but it's not really publicized. And, you know, I don't know of anybody who had anything at all like that, you know, and it's... It's good that it's, uh, I think as well, it's kind of, it's more just like the internet generation now as well. You know, there's, there's, these things are more easily available to find, but actually if you can have them in one place and it's something that you need, it's a hugely supportive thing. And Absolutely, absolutely. And the interesting thing is that there's, there's a diversity and social mobility element to a lot of this. So if you are lucky enough to have parents who are able to, you know, provide the bank of mum and dad money that government is assuming all young people are getting then that's great. But if you don't, then actually, where do you where do you go? Like, there just isn't the money there. And so being able to plug that gap, as I said, w is a win for everyone. But if you spoke to an American, they will know people who got scholarships because it's such a big part of their... Obviously, the system is different and all the rest of it. But, you know, the, the, the guy that we've hired to run point on this project, he himself was a scholarship, um, a scholarship recipient in the US. So the, the, the space is, is a very well-known space. It's just not established in the UK. Yeah, it's something as well that like um, for me personally, I feel quite because like I got additional funding to go to university because I didn't have the financial background to do that. So to hear that it's made a lot easier for the next, well, couple of generations down from me now, though, it's just it makes me happy to hear that. So, yeah. Um, and then to kind of move on to the other point then really around your experiences then as a female founder. So what do you want to see change to make the experience of setting up an, a, a company, a fintech? better for women in the future and what do you think could be learned from your experience yeah it's a, it's such a loaded conversation in in especially in the UK although to be honest er everywhere um we all know, well, anyone who's in the game knows that every venture capital dollar, only two cents goes to women. We know that it's even worse if you, um, you know, if you come from a more marginalized background. Um, but I think everyone has a responsibility and I'm using air quotes 
which is pathetic and apologies. Um, but everyone kind of needs to do what they need to do in order to make that better. So, you know, we do need to see more money flowing to female founders. There's there's no argument that has legs that women only get two cents out of every dollar. Like, the, the, yes, there's fewer female founders, but there's not 98% fewer founders. Like, the, the, there's no mathematical argument for that other than that there are th certain biases. A lot of that capital allocators are men and they tend to, you know, like goes to like and, and all of that is, 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 you know, is human and predictable and we need to change it. We are seeing more female investors coming into the fray. I'll be honest with you, some of the worst experiences I've had have been with female investors, so it's not a panacea at all. But certainly the more female capital allocators they are, the, the easier we'd like to think and the more normalised, again, quote unquote, it'll be. On the female side, I think that we women also need to also drive the story forward. And it's like my mum was one of four account female accounting students in a class of 900 men when she went to university and she was like, it sucked and it's this. But today it's, it's over 50% of accounting graduates are women. So change does come in incrementally, painfully slow steps, but it does come if we're pushing it forward. And there are a lot of women who are doing extraordinary things in business and that inspires other women to get into the game. And as those women start to pursue funding, and then we've got, you know, media organisations like the FT talking about what's going on and, you know, talking, pushing the story forward. We will make change. But I don't think it's for men to solve the problem and I don't think it's for women to solve the problem. I think as a community of startups, policymakers, media agencies, all of this, we can all make change happen. And the more successful female founders there are, the more hopefully, I say we, in anticipation of hopefully being part of that group, we can pave the way for other female founders. But I don't think there's, you know... Everybody needs to do X and we'll solve the problem. It's just not how it works. It's 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 gonna be it's gonna be slow, but we are making some progress. Although it was two point seven cents two years ago and now it's two cents. So it is in some ways getting worse. But then the pandemic, it's hard to know how many women stepped away and how much money and all the rest of it. But um I'm incredibly optimistic, otherwise I would have stuck to wealth management. Fair enough. And I suppose are there any any particular kind of issues or blockers that you think if that could be removed, that would be a whole help? Um, I mean, I'd love to say that, that there's like a really simple solution. I think we need to overcome this, um, what do you call it? Uh, oh my God, I've forgotten now the word where you think you don't belong in a place. Imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. That's the one. That's the one. Um, I speak a lot to, to young entrepreneurs and it's always a question. It always comes from women. How do you overcome imposter syndrome? And I think it's a fake it till you make it. Um, I think that that's the thing. And I think you know, who was it? Is it Gandhi? Be the change that you want to see. Like, I know it all sounds super cliched, but there's a reason these cliches are cliches. I don't think that there's any one solution that, you know, the venture capital space can do. They can allocate money and that's nice, but it doesn't necessarily land. There's female partners. They don't necessarily always have the social capital to drive change. I think we as female founders need to simply keep pushing and just know that it's hard, but not keep going on and on that can't be the narrative if I'm constantly saying oh my god this sucks being a woman it's awful it's horrible the whole deck stacked against me why would anybody else come into the game so I'm like just you know the nicest possible way and I hope I don't offend anyone put your big girl pants yeah. on and, <laughs> and, smash, and smash through that wall and it'll make it easier for the person that comes behind you like that's you know and I know it's a little bit privileged to be able to say that but I think if you don't do that then you're waiting for other people to pave the way you'll be waiting forever yeah. well what a note to end on so <laughs> <laughs> be the change you want to see exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Vivi, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to Disruptive Voices, a monthly podcast from The Banker. You can listen at thebanker.com, ACAS, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.